Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McGlass-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. My guest this week is Bess Mota, actress, fitness instructor, and star of the legendary 20-minute workout. So if you've ever seen my Instagram, at Laura Kitty, you probably know that I'm a huge fan of 80s workout videos. I have posted a lot of clips from them and even have a hashtag, um, hashtag Laura Kitty workout. Some of my earliest memories are my mother's VHS fitness tapes, which I would pop in the VCR and watch on repeat, captivated by the women jumping in unison and leotards and leg warmers. It's a hugely influential aesthetic memory for me. As I learned more about fitness history and the rise of aerobics in the 1980s, I became aware of 20-Minute Workout, a Canadian TV show developed by Ron Harris in 1983, featuring a bevy of beautiful girls working out in an all-white studio filmed from many innovative angles. 20-Minute Workout was a spin-off of Aerobicize, a series of workout videos Ron had produced in 1981. It was broadcast across Canada and syndicated at stations all around the U.S. Bess was one of the star instructors, known by fans for her mop of curly hair, ultra-lean body, and endless energy. The show became a fan favorite not just for the hard workouts, but also for the rather erotic staging of it. The Ron Harris aesthetic, the white room, close-ups of women's body parts moving in unison, synth music pulsating in the background, has had a huge lingering influence on pop culture, from porn to music videos to every ad American Apparel ever made. But 20-Minute Workout is just one small part of Bess's history. As we discussed, she grew up outside LA and acted from a young age. Needing to lose weight for auditions led her to aerobics, which became her lifelong passion and career. Throughout the 1980s, Bess taught classes in LA and traveled almost weekly to lead workouts at malls all over the country. She continued to act in small movie and TV roles, leading to her famous part as Sarah Connor's roommate Ginger in The Terminator. In 2016, Bess starred as Judy Garland in the West Coast theater premiere of The Boy from Oz, for which she won the LA Stage Alliance Ovation Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical and Best Featured Performance from the Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle, in addition to multiple awards from Los Angeles theater critics. After 40 years of leading workouts, last year Bess retired from teaching. Bess and I connected on Instagram years ago, so it was great to finally meet her in person when I was in LA a few months ago. We cover all of the twists and turns of her multifaceted career, taking care of ill parents and love, along with the details all of the details of 80s aerobics culture. The energy that so captivated 20-minute workout fans in the 1980s is still there. She's funny, bright, and full of laughter. If you're interested in fitness history, Hollywood, and LA in the 1980s, I think you'll love this conversation. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to this podcast. Enjoy. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to meet with you. It's so great to meet you, Laura. I'm such a big fan of your work. <laughs> Thank you. I'm a huge fan of your work. So Thank it's you. Really exciting. <laughs> when I knew I was coming out here, I was like, oh, I really want to talk to Bass. Like, I was so thrilled. I'm like, ah. I, it's just, I, I love every single thing you put up. You're such a wonderful writer. And I get, I get a lot of people who ask me to do podcasts and stuff, but it's, it's, if I don't know them or their stuff doesn't speak to me, it doesn't even occur to me to go talk to a stranger, do you know? But with you, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I'm going to finally meet my girlfriend. <laughs> There's so much I want to cover, but I usually always ask start by just like asking people to talk about like 
their childhood where they grew up and a bit about their background? Yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up here in Los Angeles, but out in the San Fernando Valley area in, a, in an area called Woodland Hills, which it was a very, you know, just a lovely, almost, I don't want to say farmland, but there, every house had like a big, you know, lot. And, and it was just a wonderful place to grow up, very um, sort of uh, kids running around from house to house, huge Halloweens, that kind of stuff. And it was an area where a lot of um, movie stars, or I should say TV stars, really, mm-hmm. raised their families. And uh, I grew up with a lot of children of famous people which was fun I mean I think I have had such a fun life every every little touch along the way has been very like if I was not me I'd go oh that's so cool that's so cool so I've, I've always enjoyed telling my life story because to me it's been so much fun and that's how I got the acting bug it was just from growing up with so many kids of actors the house that I grew up in was kind of up on a hill and above my house uh, there was one more house a little higher, and the actor Clint Walker. I don't. You may know who he is. He yeah. had he had one of the original Western TV shows. I think his was called Cheyenne. I've kind of spaced the uh, the name of it right now, but I think it was called Cheyenne. And he was this super tall, handsome guy. He just recently passed away. Absolutely beautiful man. And he had um, a lovely daughter named Valerie, and she was my babysitter. And she was a very magical person, and I had all these, you know, wonderful little sort of dreamy fairyland gifts that she would do and things that she would do. She'd, she'd like, put ballet slippers outside on a bush and then say, what was that? And I'd say, what was that? And she, she we'd go outside, and there'd be, like, a little wand and little ballet slippers. So I had a very kind of, like, magical upbringing in, in the sense of, feeling that everything was special and every day was exciting. I had a really great childhood that way. And um, after he moved away, then a singer named Roger Miller, who was very famous at the time, this is in the 60s, early 60s, um, he moved into the house. And so that was like another showbiz person. And after he moved away, then some big executive at Universal moved into the house. So I always had this little flavoring of show business. So there was never any question that that's what I wanted to be was an actor. Were your parents in the industry? My father was a was a scientist. My mother was had been a, a light opera singer, so not opera opera, but sort of um, like naughty Marietta kind of thing, kind of uh, Jeanette McDonald, uh, Deanna Durbin, those kind of singers. She had a beautiful voice. And I can sing like her, but my voice is a little a little deeper. It's my voice isn't really like hers, but I can f- imitate her. <laughs> Were they supportive of you wanting to go into acting? And- yes, absolutely. I mean, my father was very, very, you know, always said to me. I, I, the one thing I remember him always saying to me is, "What book are you reading?" And I and I would just roll my eyes. It's like, you, what you mean is, what album am I listening to? <laughs> That's what you really mean to say. So he was much more practical and scientific. And my mom, you know was absolutely supportive. I started doing a lot of, you know, shows and, and things when I was really young. So my I, I conditioned my mother to the way it was, and she loved it. You know, I mean, I think I started when, well, I started as, as a little ballet dancer when I was young, and then that folded into being an ice skater when I was about, I feel like I must have been pretty young then, like nine years old. And then my dream became to be an Olympic ice skater, and... I loved ice skating. I was pretty good at it, but I wasn't great at it. And you had to really be able to travel and, 
you know, you had to be there at five in the morning and that was just not going to happen. So from there, I just started taking more jazz classes. And once I got into junior high school, drama classes and high school drama classes and doing the productions there. And so by the time I graduated from high school, I had I was lucky enough that I was able to do the leads in, in several really nice productions. And so I felt very confident, you know, moving forward from that. I read somewhere that you were in plays with Val Kilmer and Marilyn. Like yes. Well, my school was in one area, Woodland Hills, Taft High School was my school. And then in Chatsworth, and our drama teacher was wonderful, Mrs. Cabral. She was just fantastic. But then over in Chatsworth, which was just a little bit away, Chatsworth High did this amazing summer production. All of their productions were amazing. Mr. Corelli was the teacher there. And in the summer, they would do a summer school production. And I had a friend who went to another high school and he somehow convinced me to come and audition for that show, which was um, Sweet Charity. And I was lucky enough to get the part of Charity. But in that school that had Val Kilmer and Mayor Winningham, and who else was there? An actress named, uh, I, th- I think Diane had come over and done, Diane Delano. I just grew up with sort of a whole, there was a whole cachet of the drama kids in the Valley who, so many of them are still actors and some of them really became Oscar-nominated or Oscar winners. Kevin Spacey was in our group. I mean, I know he's had a horrible time of it, obviously, what, what has happened, and it makes all of us really sad because he was one of us. He was one of the drama kids, and there were a lot. There were a lot who went on to do a lot of things. Stephanie Kramer had a TV show, Hunter. I mean, if I sat here and picked my brain over every person, but, but it was a, a very nice base of, of um, you know, young actors to kind of grow up with. And when you graduated, did you go straight into just like act, trying to get acting roles? Yeah, the way it happened for me was that I I was the kind of kid that really just, I didn't like school very much at all. I mean, you know, to the point where I, I remember one teacher said to me, I know you don't want to be here, but where do you want to be? And I was pretty specific. I was like, out there. <laughs> By the time I graduated high school, even though I actually, this was a, a, a long time ago, but like in mid-70s, like in 75, I had several really nice universities that courted me. I don't know whether there were certain teachers that had written letters on my behalf. I really don't know because at the time I didn't care. Now in, in hindsight, I'm like, what were you thinking? But I just wanted to start doing productions right away and I think uh, the first summer out of of high school I I went and did summer stock theater in Jackson Hole Wyoming and then when I came back from there I auditioned for a little show called the Great American Backstage Musical which was a wonderful show but only six people in it and it had been a big hit in Los Angeles in the 99 seat theater world and then they took it up to um, San Francisco and one of the girls was leaving the show so I auditioned to replace her and I was lucky enough to get that I think I was like 18 years old so I'd really never been away from home by myself and I moved up to San Francisco and it was very easy I just moved into her apartment she left and it was right there on Geary Street very central and fabulous and a couple of the other actors lived in the same building so even though now when I think of being eight years 18 years old and doing that it blows my mind but at the time that was just getting out and doing it and so I think I was up there for about six months I'll tell you what year it was because it was the year that Elvis Presley died so I think that was 77 yeah because I remember going down Gary Street walking to get the bus to go to the theater and seeing that headline in one of those newspaper box things so that's how I always remember what year it was otherwise I'd have 
no, no <laughs> memory of when I was there. I always have funny little demarcations of where I was. And then a British actor named Anthony Andrews. Are you British? I grew up in London. Do you know who Anthony Andrews mm-hmm. is? He had been in Brideshead Revisited, which was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I had never seen it because I was young and not watching that sort of stuff yet. I just didn't interest me at that point. But but he somehow, or I know our producers up in San Francisco uh, were British and friends with him, and he came to see the show and decided that he wanted to take it to London, but he could only, he, they wouldn't let him bring the whole show over, so he only wanted to bring me. I mean, I shouldn't say only, I'm sure he wanted to bring everyone, but I was the one that got chosen to go, and by then I was 19 years old, so here I am, 19, moving to London to do that little show, and it was just, it was unbelievable. It just seemed like every year, boom, 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 on track, on track, on track, on track. And that's how it was going. So I just went and did that. And, you know, again, that must have been 78 or 79. You know, there was no cell phones. You had, I had to write letters to my mother or the most pathetic thing. I mean, it would be hard for a young person to even understand this, but I would sit in my little room and make pathetic recordings into my cassette player and send her the cassette so we could hear each other's voices. Isn't that unbelievable, right? uh, Yeah, but I love that you did that. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then finally, at some point after I'd been rehearsing for a month or so for opening night, my boyfriend and... And my mom came over to see the show and stayed for a while. We were living in, in Clapham. Do you know that mm-hmm. area? That's where, I, that's where I was staying while I rehearsed. I was, this is a, a great little detour from the story. It's, it could have been so even more amazing than it was, and it was pretty great. So Anthony Andrews brought me over, and I was to stay with him at his house, in, uh, I believe it was in Wimbledon, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense at all. But I think it was like the week before I was to come, his wife fell off of a horse, and it was a terrible accident. And so instead of having me stay at the house, they had to turn the house sort of into a, a makeshift hospital, and they needed my room for a nurse or something. I mean, it was a big deal at the time. And so they ended up renting me uh, a room in this... I guess you'd call it a row house in Clapham, and that's where I stayed during the rehearsal. Is that wild? Yeah. Are these little details? And and this is why I really enjoyed doing something like this because I never think of these things. And then once I start talking about me, 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 <laughs> then it's like, oh yeah, and that led to this. And but anyway, I, I remember. Um, the first time I saw Harry Potter, when they were, were going all through the movie, well, when they were going through all those streets, I turned to my husband and I said, I think that's where I lived, because they all kind of looked the same. But, but there was a certain glow to the lights in the park at night. It, it was a very yellow, sort of haunting, really frightening cast of color that would come down. And I, I would take the tube to get back home from rehearsal and walk here I am, like 19 years old, walking along through the park to get to my little house, which I would always have trouble finding because they kind of really did all look alike. And it's a, it was very cinematic, but I can just remember the color, that, that yellow, weird, gray, green, yellow light just coming down and making my skin look so odd. And even there, I remember thinking, how, how did I get here? Where am I? <laughs> but once the show opened, then I moved on to King's Road, 
which was fantastic. And that's right when the, you know, the punk scene was happening and all that stuff. I was on a second floor and when the double decker buses would come by, I could, I could reach out my window and touch someone if I wanted to. I mean, it was that close and that was a great time. So that show ran for a while and it was great. And that was pretty much my, my theatrical boom, 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 all in a row from the time I was pretty young until that time. Amazing. I mean, to have been in San Francisco at like the height of disco and then basically go to yes. London at the height of punk. I mean, yes. like be in sort of the, the the right places. Were you right. Were you able to like interact with those worlds or were you really just busy? I was focused and I was also not adventuresome that way. Like I had many friends that were more into the you know, I don't want to say the drug scene because that sounds so heavy duty, but they were much more experimental with like marijuana or cocaine or whatever. And I was always very, very straight and narrow. I, you know, I just, I just was, um, you know, I know, I remember, I would have never remembered saying this, but at a high school reunion, someone came up to me and said, I remember one time I asked you if you wanted a cigarette and you said, I'm a singer. Why would a horn player bash their horn against the wall? Now, when I think of that, I would have never remembered saying that. I don't know if a vocal teacher said that to me or if that really just came out of my little brain. But that just illustrates my mindset. I was like, no, that's okay. So while a lot of the drama kids were a lot more, you know, into whatever, I never was. And then once I went to these cities, I was always working every night. And I wasn't the type that was going to go out partying by myself afterwards. I was always the baby always the baby baby that's why it's so shocking for me to be <laughs> wearing this old costume <laughs> no I, I was always the young one and everyone always made sure I got home all right and that kind of thing so I wouldn't say I was out at San Francisco you know I wasn't partying with Sylvester although I wish I could say I was <laughs> yeah I mean I think it's always like one of those things where you're like you know if I'd been able to live then I would have done this but would I really I don't know right right so I think also that's probably what gives us such a great appreciation for those time periods. I don't think we have any like, you know, horrible <laughs> experiences particularly, you know, but you know what I mean? We didn't, we didn't wear it out. It's glamorous to us because we weren't particularly involved with it, but I definitely did live through some very, very amazing times. You know, I, I've got this lovely cousin. He is the son of my actual first cousin. And the other night, He's got this beautiful home with this gorgeous backyard. And in the summertime, he does outdoor screenings. And, you know, he's, I don't know, he's 40. He's not a baby, but I'm, you know, I'm 64. So he was showing Jaws and it was fantastic. And it was so nostalgic and so emotional for me. I've seen Jaws many times, you know, on TV, of course, but just to see it on a big screen and, and relive that feel, feeling and memory of being at the very first night that Jaws ever played in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. In Century City, there were these fantastic theaters called the Plitt Theaters, which were right across from the Schubert Theater, right there in, when Century City was still 
new and still fabulous. Now it's been completely redone and it's new again. But I mean, I just have that memory of all of us getting there early and lining up around the block and seeing, you know, it was like a who's who of drama kids throughout the whole city and just different people that you would see at all the first night screenings of great films. And, and there were so many great films coming out at that time. So I, you know, I, I just inadvertently said to, you know, a group of his friends, oh yeah, I was there the first night that this was shown in Los Angeles. <laughs> Their faces were like, what? <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> so oh God, that would be amazing to go into that without like the preconception of knowing what was coming at all. Oh my gosh. Well, that, and that's exactly right. Because I don't know if a lot of these guys had seen the film because there's one particular scene where a head comes floating down through a, a little sailboat and, Everyone jumped out of their skin, and that was what was so um, deja vu. I remember sitting in that theater and just en masse, I don't know how many people it was, a thousand people all popped up out of their chairs at the same time. Or the beginning of the film, seeing Chrissy run down to the beach. You know, I knew what was going to happen, but I think a lot of people there the other night didn't know. And it's just such a great film. Although I will say it is dated in a certain way, but it's it's a great film. It it. it, it it's from the 70s. It's from the mid-70s. Of course it's dated. <laughs> I, I rewatched it this summer, actually, good. with my parents. And it, I think it's like, it's still so scary and so good. And it really does hold up. Thing, it was you know? outrageous. And then I'll tell you another one. I hope I'm not boring you. <laughs> no, not at all. I love those. I also was there for the first night of The Exorcist. No. Now imagine that. That made, I mean... Jaws was nothing compared to The Exorcist. And that was at a theater called The National, which was on the corner in Westwood. And it was a two-story theater, a big, horrible, ugly brown building, which was a very chic color at the time, that wrapped around that corner. And that, again, was another theater where just the who's who of, of theater goers, I mean, would be waiting in that line. And it was a single file line. You'd go buy your ticket and then you'd go to the other line. And some people would try to cut in and some people wouldn't. And some people would, you know, be there hours earlier, whatever. But it was a whole experience of getting the ticket and then waiting to go in. It was upstairs, the lobby and the tickets and everything were downstairs. And then you went up these two big staircases, one on either side, and then the theater came back down in. So, but you know, I can remember distinctly seeing The Exorcist for the first time. I believe it was on a Wednesday night, and I think it was during, like, Christmas vacation. We could check and see when it came out in L.A. I feel like it was during... It was definitely cool. It wasn't a summer release. But just my mind being blown. And I was raised Catholic. My mother was very Catholic, and, you know, I, I wasn't super Catholic my whole uh, teen years, but... I, once that's in you, that's like a branding. So the whole Catholic imagery and all of that, I was, it's a wonder I didn't pass out. And I think, again, I was like 15. I was so young and so scared. Just like Jaws, I couldn't take baths anymore. Why we couldn't take baths, I don't know. But that's the power of, of tactile memory, of sense memory, and touching the water and, and associating, which, of course, is the beautiful work you can do as an actor. So to have that demonstrated, even then I'm like, you're a weirdo, take a bath. But, <laughs> but just just the, the total fear that was put into me at an age where I was pretty spicy, where I was pretty uh, brave, you know, and I couldn't sleep in my own bed and I would have to sleep next to my mom who would snore like, <laughs> and that would scare me. <laughs> it was very traumatic. It's a great memory. I mean, it wasn't so great going through it at the time because I did feel it scarred me. <laughs> I 
I'm sure if I was that young when I saw it and had, you know, I feel like I was exposed to probably a lot more horror movies just on TV by that, by the time I saw it. Definitely. Um, but it was like the original, mm-hmm. you've got to be kidding me movie. The late seventies, early eighties, like were you, did you want to get into movies, to acting in movies? Yeah, I was much more musical theater because in me, I was just fortunate that I had a, a really strong voice. And so I, it wasn't hard for me. It, it was easy at that point. So that's what I focused on. Now, when I was in London, this is, London is kind of a turning point for my trajectory in that uh, while I was there, Evita had opened. Mm-hmm. And I went and saw Evita and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how amazing it was. It was the most insane theater I had ever seen. Just fantastic. And even though I was only 20 years old, 19 or 20, I was young, I decided I was going to play Evita on Broadway, that I was going to do that. And so that, that speaks to the kind of confidence and trajectory momentum that I had. Mm-hmm. So it had been running there for, for, I don't know how long it ran, a year or, what, or whatever, maybe a little longer, and then it was coming to Broadway, and I was back in Los Angeles, and, you know, back back then, you could find auditions in, I don't know, the drama log, there were all kinds of different uh, publications for actors, so you could see, and they, they would put, you know, when they were doing the auditions, I was already in equity, because I had done that musical up in San Francisco, so I was a professional actor, I was in the union, and so I bought a plane ticket, and I went to New York, to audition, and I stayed with a girlfriend who was living there, and I just walked my little body over to the uh, St. James Theater, if I remember the right theater, and they and it was a lot around the block. The casting director was Joanne. Now I'm spacing on her last name because I'm old, but anyway, she was so such a famous casting director in the theater world, and it, that was not an audition day. That was an interview day, and I came in, and I showed her my reviews from doing the Great American Backstage Musical, and I told her my story of seeing Evita and how I could totally sing it and I was going to do it, and that's that. And she said, okay, fine, come back tomorrow, or whenever it was, a couple days, and sing for Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I was like, (laughs) done and done. It didn't phase me. Now when I tell the story, you would think I would have walked out of there like this, but I did not. I was just that young and that driven, for lack of a better word. I was confident. I was very confident. So, I mean, if I'd had a brain cell in my head, I would have wanted to audition for the part of the mistress, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but it's a much more, it would have been perfect for me. I'm sure I probably could have slammed that because I had that little young look. But I know I wanted to sing Evita. So I came the next day and it was definitely a day. I remember Barbara Streisand's sister auditioned before me, Julie Budd. And I was like, of course you're here with Barbara Streisand's sister. And Julie Budd had a really strong nightclub act at the time. It was, and I can't remember right now who came after me, but she was strong too. And I'm like, here you are, here you are with them. Of course you are. I'm trying to remember what I sang. I want to think that I sang The Man I Love. I thought that was a great audition for that. But whatever, I I was not uh, chosen. I was not, uh, you know, I went home a couple days later and then would get in touch with the casting director it was a time when you could actually get them on the phone. And finally, at one time, she said, no, no, sweetheart, we're not, we're not going to be using for you, you in this project. No big deal once you're a seasoned actor. But to be honest, it was kind of the first time the dream died in my hand in front of me. And 
I was absolutely like beyond devastated. I, I mean, I can remember crying. Like, I don't even know how I was breathing. I cried so hard. I was so disappointed. I loved that show so much and I wanted to originate that role. I just felt that I should and I could, but I, but I couldn't and I didn't. <laughs> but here's, here's where the, the whole story takes this weird turn. While I was living in London doing the Great American Backstage Musical all by myself in this little flat after my mom and my boyfriend had gone home, I started eating, I started doing tea time and having biscuits, having cookies and tea. And I, I wasn't exercising particularly and I put on a lot of weight. So by a lot of weight, I probably weighed what I, what I weigh right now. I probably weighed like 125 pounds, but I, I was smaller. I was plump. I was juicy. I wasn't, I wasn't tiny enough to be the ingenue and I wasn't really pudgy enough to be the, the best friend or the character actress. I was in this weird in-between world where I wasn't being seen for anything or being chosen. So I lived in Brentwood, which is a very wonderful area uh, near Santa Monica. And um, there was a, a little gym around the corner. And so I thought, well, I've got to start going to this gym because this, I'm a mess. I'm not going to get anything. I would audition too pudgy or not pudgy enough. So I started going to this gym and exercising, and I, I absolutely loved it. I had never really worked out. I had done like jazz classes or, you know, done classes every day. But this was the beginning, I don't know, maybe 1980, 1981. It was the beginning of the leg warmer craze. And I was there for it. I was, I mean, I was all about it, but I was still a little punch ball. So I started taking these aerobic classes, and there were a couple teachers that I just, you know, loved. I would take every class. And about this time, I, I saw aerobicize, which was the, the precursor to the TV show that I did, the 20-minute workout. I saw aerobicize on cable. Cable had just come in. There was a channel out here called the Z Channel. And they would play aerobicize after the Tom Snyder show. Do you remember the Tom Snyder show? I know. It was the late night, late, late, late. He wasn't funny like Conan, but he was so sophisticated and he would smoke on camera and he was fabulous. And I loved Tom Snyder and my, my husband, my boyfriend and I would watch it. And then, you know, as if it wasn't late enough, then they'd put on this amazing exercise show with this fabulous music and these girls just jumping around in their little leotards, barefoot on this white background. And it was Evita all over again. I was like, oh my God, this, well, this is just beautiful. I have got to do this. So I started really exercising, working out a lot. And one day, this is, it's just, you know, it just speaks to manifestation, I think. Or, or I, I guess they, it's what the secret is. I've never read the secret or, or don't really know what the secret is. But I think this is it. Here comes this girl, Deborah who was like the most beautiful girl on the show. She comes into my little gym and she's a new teacher. And I, I'm like, hamina, hamina. So now I'm taking classes from Deborah, who's the beautiful girl that I have just idolized watching this TV show. And she and I become friends. And I drop a bunch of weight. Oh, and guess who's coming along now? Ron Harris, the director of the show. He starts taking classes. Oh, by this time I've started teaching. But I'm not fully, fabulously formed yet. I'm better, but I'm still a little juicy. 
So he's going to do some exercise spin-off of aerobic size, and I guess it's just another version of it. And I auditioned for that, and he's like, mm, you still got to lose five or ten pounds. I mean, it was that, like, heartbreakingly, uh, you know, put in front of me. Well, you better believe I lost five or ten pounds. So now, Ron is taking my classes all the time, and he decides he's going to do the instructional version of what Deborah starred in, which was the sort of dreamy, erotic, if you will. I never saw any of this stuff as erotic. I just thought it was like fairies and magical. I just thought it was beautiful and dance. But the, the, the internet has taught me that what it was was soft porn. I never thought of it that way, but it's interesting to see that term attached to yourself when you had no idea that that's what you were doing. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Ron sort of... I don't want to say fashion the show. He would have done it whether I was there or not. But definitely, I was in that one for sure. And we auditioned a bunch of girls here in L.A. And we shot it up in Toronto. And a lot of the girls were from Toronto. But I think we took, you know, three or four girls from Los Angeles up there. And that began the whole exercise part of my career, which I never in a million years, you know, would have thought would have happened. But at the time... It was a combination of, you know, not having show to show to show to show to show. That stopped. And the gym obsession, I'll use the word obsession, you know, that I developed and that I was enjoying. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was never an ugly situation. It was always an absolute joy. That just led to the 20-minute workout in Canada. And we did like, I don't know, 100 shows, maybe more in like three weeks. We'd do five a day, back to back to back to back to back. It was so much fun. Came home, and I guess they showed it nonstop in Toronto. They showed it all over the place. Guess what? I never saw it because it was on super early in the morning. I don't think I was up yet. Or when it was on during normal times, I was already at the gym teaching my own classes. So I never really even saw it. As funny as that sounds, I don't know. I must have taped it or something. I must have had some, you know idea of what it was, but I don't remember, for instance, sitting in my own home and watching it, ever. And I don't even particularly remember being recognized for it out here, or my friends saying, oh, I saw your show. I don't remember any of that. But I did start to get a little bit of uh, traction. I got some magazine covers. I, I, I got some, well, I shouldn't say some. I met someone at the gym, a very nice guy who wanted to manage my career. He had been taking my classes forever, and he was very smart started getting me magazine covers, um, endorsement deals. What do they call it now? Branding. I, okay. I, 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 I was branded. That's what I was. I got branded. So, you know, I, I became the Converse girl for Converse shoes. I was the craft light line girl for diet craft cheeses or whatever it was. And I started hosting. This is what was amazing. I started hosting aerobics competitions all over the country, in malls. So they would set up these stages in the middle of a mall, and then I'd show up, and all the girls who had watched, and boys, all the men and women who had been watching the show would show up, and they all knew me, and everyone in the mall knew me, and it was outrageous. <laughs> so it was a combination of my theatrical background experience and ability, being thrust into this bizarre sort of live version of the 20-minute workout where 
they would have like 50 kids come up on stage and I'd get in front of them and there'd be a mall full of people hanging from the levels and, I, and I'd do my little thing and they'd all do it behind me. Like it was my moves. They knew it from the show or whatever. I'd call it out, jumping jacks, side to side. And if I'd turn around, if I would turn, they'd all just be doing it like we had been rehearsing it for months. It was wild. And then they'd pull from that group and they'd break it down. So Friday was the big group. Saturday was the team's. And Saturday afternoon was, and, and then on Sunday, it's good. On yeah. Sunday, it would culminate in the, you know, competition ending. And I did that every weekend. I feel like I did that for years. Maybe it was a couple years. Maybe it was four years. I don't know. But I was on a plane every weekend for a wow. long time. And that was that leg of that. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Okay. Isn't that crazy? And the weirdest thing is, you know, I never stopped teaching classes. It, that was enough for me. In fact, it was even more than performing on stage because performing on stage, I didn't get the, the feeling of helping anybody. You got the feeling of I performed for you. You know, that, that's itch was scratch. But in teaching classes, I had just kind of begun to develop in a different way. It was so wonderful to help people. Yeah. So I never stopped teaching from the time I was like, you know, 22 through the show, through all that, that, that became my job and my life. And I would audition here and there and do a few things here and there. You know, the Terminator happened in there and that was great. I mean, but the through thread became the teaching of exercise classes. At that time you were doing the very like, just like the 20 minute workout, the very like sort of aerobics thing. Right? Yes. With the tights, the leg warmers, the white shoes, the high cut leotards. In fact, I'll tell you in the mid to later 80s, you know, I got, let's just, let's just put it this way. I got in very good shape, very good shape. I had a boyfriend who was very into it with me. It wasn't like when you have a husband who's like, what are we having for dinner? You know what I mean? We were on this program together and we did class in the morning. I taught. He was with me. We would go to a health food restaurant, and uh, it was called the Good Earth out here at the time. It was a chain of restaurants. And we would have our meal for the day, and that was pretty much it. And then I'd teach one or two classes in the evening, and maybe we'd have a little frozen yogurt after that. And that was pretty much the routine. So I was lean. They had just started doing this underwater body fat testing. And I remember I had my underwater body fat testing and my body was at 7% body fat. That's insane. That's really low for a woman. It's insanely low. But I, I was fine. I tended, you know, my skin was thin. I was very, very flat chested. I was a ballet body and I was fine. I had all the energy in the world because I loved it so much. I just kept progressing deeper into what it was. And there were tanning beds, you know, there was all this stuff. So I was going to say to you, I can't believe saying it to you now at age 64, but there was a time in the 80s where I actually taught my classes in little trunks, I guess you'd call them, the little bikini bottom mm -hmm. with a little bra top and no tights. I literally, I mean... I think even now, sometimes I watch the track runners, uh, you know, the track competition. I'll say to my husband, that's pretty much what I was doing. But even those weren't fr aren't French cut. Yeah. I was in French cut underwear, basically. The great company was Dance France. Are you familiar with Dance France? Yeah. It's a great, I mean, I know it was my reality, but I know now, you know, if, you, if people are buying vintage pieces, Dance France is great if you can find that. But, you know, these companies would send me boxes. I, it's, it's like I never wore the same leotard twice. People were sending me stuff from all over. I had 200 pairs of leg warmers. I probably, I do still have them. I kept the leg warmers. That's what I kept really. But I mean, it was just a really 
fabulous time with the icing on the cake being I didn't even under I didn't even know what was going on in Canada and around the world. Mm-hmm. That show was sold everywhere. Now when I did the show up in Canada, Ron Harris who he he's passed away now but I loved him so much. I really loved him. He I just thought he was a genius. I thought he was the most amazing photographer. Everything he did was brilliant the way he set us up. He taught me how to move. He'd say, move to the left. And of course, a normal person would move to the left. He goes, when I tell you to move to the left, I'm talking about less than the size of your, of your fingernail. Now move to the left. And it just means do this so that the girls could all be lined up for these incredible shots. So I just loved him and thought he was absolutely wonderful. But, but, and I'm all right with this. We didn't really, we didn't have agents or anything. And the way we did that show was he, they pretty much had a sign on the dotted line uh, right before we went out to shoot the first show. And it was basically, I, I was an experienced actor. I mean, I, you know, I was like, well, I need to have somebody look at this. And they were like, oh, well, you don't have to do the show. It really was that. It was sign now right. or not, mm-hmm. or not. And believe me, I didn't come that far to not do the show. I didn't even care about the money. I was just about the show. So, but I, I did come to find out, you know, once the internet hit and YouTube hit and, and I started getting messages from people, Facebook, that's when I started to learn that people from Peru and people from Spain and people from the whole world watched that show. And that Canadians were telling me that they, the show was on five, six times a day and that when they were going to high school in the wintertime, they would just put on the 20-minute workout every day in the gym. That was their PE. That was their phys ed because it was too cold to go outside. So that, so I had this huge sort of ripple effect that I knew nothing about. Once the social media started happening, I mean, I don't want to cry, but I started receiving the most heartfelt confessional letters from men and women pouring their hearts out, their teenage hearts out, about what the show meant to them. I was on drugs and I got off the show because off the drugs because I watched the show every day. Or I was gay and my parents hated me and I lived in the basement and watched your show. You know, that kind of stuff. All these different little things. I was suicidal. Your show gave me something to live for. I'm giving you three little examples. Multiply each one of those little stories by maybe 100 or 200 letters. And so then that just became you know, this whole other thing. And then that was when I was really able to make peace with how I had been financially taken advantage of, which, believe me, for a minute in time was very disappointing and very, very gut-wrenching to know that I had been taken advantage of in that way and that my product, you know, had been sold all over the world. I was, the way I would comfort myself is, well, you're basically ginger in Gilligan's Island because the same thing happened to, you know, the, the early actors before residuals and that kind of thing. So I just said, just let it go. You helped, you helped people. And for me, that has been the most amazing thing to, to really learn at a, a later age, a much later age, that people saw me and, and people were hearing me. I, I was seen and heard and I helped people. So that's, that's really been, for me, the greatest the greatest gift out of all of that stuff. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I say that all the time. I'm sure I've probably said, isn't that amazing? Like 50 times to you, but I say it to myself during the day all the time. And, you know, even though some things have not go, gone the way I would have wanted. Um, I mean, I had a whole phase of my career where I was uh, really on the precipice of having a nice recording career, which would have been beyond wonderful. 
And then, of course, when I learned about how many teenage fans I had on the East Coast and in Toronto, it would have been such a natural progression mm-hmm. and connection of all the little girls who grew up watching 20-minute workout and of my singing. It, that could have come together very nicely. So I've, I've had, you know, heartache over that. But I don't know. I don't know what would have um, happened to me if that had all come together in my, you know, mid-late 20s. I was always very energetic. I was very spunky. I like to drive fast. I probably would have gotten a Ferrari and who knows what would have happened then. I do like to feel that, you know, the goddess has taken care of me, that the universe has watched out for me. And I really do trust in those things as far as not having some of my, what were my goals or dreams actualized or realized. I I really do believe in, you don't know what, what would have happened if those things had come true. I did a little research and I saw something about being playing in a band at the time. Like yes. Was, was it kind of, was it yes. rock or what was it? Well, it was very rock and roll, but very pop rock. It was very, you know, at the time, Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks was influence, Pat Benatar. You know, there were all kinds of, you know, it was right when MTV was starting. And Madonna was definitely here. She had just come on the scene and we're we're the same age. We're exactly the same age. And, you know, I, I wanted to be sort of a, a, a West Coast version of her East Coast Madonna. So, you know, I did a lot of demos and, and got very close to, to having some projects really come to fruition. And then there were some business decisions that just didn't roll the way they should have. And, you know, if you could go back in time, I know exactly what I'd do differently, but you can't. But it was very close. And in the midst of that, without getting too specific, there were so many more things working in my favor that I didn't even know about at the time. Because sometimes when you're in it, you're in it. And once, once, you know, some years had gone by, I heard some different stories and different things that I had no knowledge of that, that really lead me to believe that it would have been very, it would have been a beautiful time if things had worked Mm -hmm. out, which they did not. But you know what, even within that, I'd still be me at this age now anyway. So sometimes just the knowledge of what could have been is cool too. You know, <laughs> you can't do everything you want to do. How did the Terminator come around? And there were other some other film roles around that. Film yeah, so Terminator. Honestly, sometimes I don't even know. I don't even know my own story because the years get confusing. But we did two seasons of Twenty Minute Workout. James Cameron was from Toronto or from Canada, I believe Toronto. I don't know whether he was up there and saw me in the Twenty Minute Workout. Or what? I've never, I never have gotten that information. But I think between the first and second season of going up there to shoot, I had a, an acting agent. I was auditioning a lot for different things, and I auditioned for the Terminator, just normal audition. Jim Cameron had no idea who he was, and um, Gail Ann Hurd wasn't even his wife at the time. But I remember I went to, I believe it was Gail's house up on Mulholland. It might have been her parents' house even because we were all that much younger at the time. She might have just been staying with her parents. I don't know. But it was up on Mulholland, had a big view of the valley, and I had grown up in the valley, so I felt very comfortable with all of that. I auditioned. The role was of an aerobics teacher, so I wasn't too worried about that. I had read through the script, and candidly, I just thought it was... I don't want to say I rolled my eyes at it, but I just thought, oh, you know, I really fancied myself an actor-actor. I wanted to do, you know, either real comedy stuff or real drama stuff. This was not what I had featured doing sort of this 
sci-fi. Sci-fi wasn't really even a thing then. So I auditioned for it and thank goodness, see, this is how you don't know. If someone had said, do you want to audition for this thing? I would have said no, but but I, you know, I if I'd known what it was really. But I wanted the role, aerobics teacher, easy, got it, easy breezy. Filmed it. Oh, I remember at one point, there was a scene that was supposed to be kind of a sex scene, and I had all these um, endorsements. Back then, you had morality clauses. Mm-hmm. Think about that. I mean, how Instagram and how it's gone now. Morality clause. <laughs> but at the time, you know, you really had to keep your clothes on if you were the Converse girl mm-hmm. or the Evian water girl or whatever the heck I was. Not, you know. So I finally got the whole script. That's what it was. I finally got the whole script, and there was a, a bed scene, and it was supposed to be like a big plate glass window, and I'm on top of the boyfriend going at it, you know, naked, and we see Terminator go by or in silhouette or something. But I read that, and I was like, oh, well, A, there, I can't do this anyway because I'm in business with these other people. But B, I was like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing a nude scene. No way. No, I was just... That was not in my wheelhouse. So that was when, uh, you know, I don't know whether it was my agent or, you know, we turned down the role. The, the role was turned down because of that scene. And then Jim Cameron rewrote the scene so it was more, had more of a comedy edge. So I was wearing the little headphones and the boyfriend was on top of me and I was just rocking out rather than being writhing away cowgirl style <laughs> in silhouette, which is what the scene was originally. So I did that. Did the movie. I don't even think I really thought about it. I think I worked on that movie three or four days at the most. And then it came out and I saw it. Are you kidding? It was so fantastic. Couldn't believe it. We saw it at the screening because Jim Cameron, James Cameron was not a big deal at the time. We had the screening at some little theater in the valley and maybe in Burbank. I, I just remember afterwards, I was just looking around going, oh, oh, oh. Couldn't believe it. And then, you know, it came out, and again, it was the beginning of a genre. It wasn't at the zenith. Mm-hmm. I mean, Terminator was probably modestly successful. I don't know what the... I don't even remember going to see it in a the theater. I'd seen it. I was off in malls, jumping up and down in my underwear. You know? <laughs> I don't remember seeing it in a the theater. Maybe I went once, but, you know, it, again, it was years later... And then when the internet happened and Facebook and da, 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 and then people started. So I had these two factions of fame. I had all the kids that grew up watching 20-minute workout and their dads. I remember my dad watching it. So I had those two groups from the exercise show. And then I had the sci-fi, um, you know, the guys mm-hmm. mostly. I mean, there were women as well, of course. But, you know, because Sarah Connor is a big feminist icon I had that world and so I've got these two like cool weird yeah right intertwined things so you know I mean that's fun and those are my two big things you know even though I've done other things and and you know little guest shots here and other little movies here and there there's nothing that you can even really compare to these two huge splashes Mm -hmm. that put me sort of in the stratosphere of either the aerobics world or the sci-fi genre through no effort particularly on my on my you know behalf I mean they just happened to be right place right time mm-hmm. and uh, you know I mean unfortunately my character was killed in Terminator so there was no uh, <laughs> sequel for Ginger <laughs> I know that you were saying that no one in LA really recognized you from 20 minute workout did people recognize you from the Terminator at that time I I, I 
honestly, because I was uh, on the road a lot, mm-hmm. I, everyone recognized me there because they were coming yeah. to see me. I mean, there, you know, there was that. And then the 20-minute workout girls, the th- two other girls who were from L.A., the three of us did a tour all over the country. I, see, I even forgot about that. We went all over to all the TV stations, and they would set up something for us to go to a mall or whatever. So I did that. So I, that's kind of how I remember people being excited mm-hmm. to see us was sort of in this, they were coming specifically. I don't particularly remember like going somewhere, like to a restaurant and having someone say, oh, you're on that exercise show. I don't recall that. Although I, you know, I mean, I think it was like 2003, around that time, one of the talk show hosts up in Toronto was doing like a 20 year tribute to the 80s. That's what it was. And they somehow found me. It's when the internet had just started. My name was mentioned in some little article and they found me through that, got that person to notify me that this person was trying to find me. That's when I learned what, what, that's when I got hip to Toronto. So that's 20 years later. Let me see if I can remember the host of the show. It was a late night show. Bill, I want to say Bill Burr, but that's not it. He's a great comedian. Well, anyway, late night with, sorry, I can't remember, but he was very popular. He was the David Letterman of Toronto. Funny guy, wonderful guy. So in 2003, they brought me out for their tribute to the 80s week. And I did that. That was that. Now I'm remembering. That was the, the week I learned who I was. I had no idea who I was until then. I just thought I was me. That was the week. From the time I landed, getting in cars, going into hotels, everyone was like this. And that was 20 years later. Right? I mean, and I wasn't wearing my hair like a poodle. It was, you know, I mean, it was me. But as soon as I would open my mouth, people would turn around and go, oh, I know your voice. I know your voice. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We went to, my husband and I went to several restaurants while we were there. Everyone would come out from the back of the restaurant to come see me and meet me. Is that wild? It's really wild. It was great. I'm like, damn, I should have moved to Toronto when I was 25. (laughs) No, I should have moved to Toronto when I was 25. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I, it's it's crazy to not have any idea that 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 you're like this cultural icon, and right. in this other country, and you are. Are you familiar with this film? I believe it's called Looking for Sugar Man. It's something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, about Rodriguez. Yeah. Yes, that's me. <laughs> when I learned about that, I said, "That's me." I've been famous all this time, and I didn't know it. It's funny, but I mean, I get a kick out of the whole thing. The whole thing is just. So much fun. And then, like, when I get to, like, interact or melt in with somebody like you who's, like, digging all these different decades and putting up all this beautiful stuff. And, oh, I just love your Instagram so much. And then I see, you know, you put up some, I don't know, different 80s stuff. And I'm like, oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. And then for me to comment on your stuff and you to go, oh, my gosh, that is just such great, you know. I loved when you said that Mary Tyler Moore came to one of your classes. Yes. Yes. Okay, so now that was not in my heyday, heyday of the early 80s, but it wasn't too far outside of that. I was not teaching at what I call my home gym, which was a, a little boutique gym in Barrington, uh, in uh, Brentwood. I, I think it was called Sean Harrington's Nautilus. Sean Harrington was a man who had invented some equipment. Yeah, the Nautilus. I right, the, the Nautilus machines. And he had some clubs in L.A. And Brentwood, was, it's a very moneyed area, a very popular movie star area. So I just lived with my boyfriend in a little apartment there. 
But because of that, I was exposed to many um, fabulous people, many fabulous people. It was so much fun. They were taking my classes. But anyway, Mary was not at that gym. She was later when I was teaching in a club. I think it was called Beverly Hills Workout on Robertson, right across from the Ivy, which was also a very, it is mm-hmm. still a shishi area. So it, that was really one of those things. We might have been doing step aerobics by then. But anyway, she came in and I didn't recognize her at first. It wasn't like people were coming up saying, Mary Tyler Moore is here. But there she was over my left shoulder. And of course, I recognized her eventually when I started looking at the people. Extremely slender, you know, beautiful. I mean, I I grew up on the Mary Tyler Moore show. I couldn't believe she was there. But, you know, there she was. It was fabulous. And that was my... uh, Brush with greatness with Mary Tyler Moore. She took the whole class. I don't. I don't believe she came another time, but she might have come another time or two. The artist that was the most for me, I think, mind blowing for me personally was when I was in Brentwood. Linda Ronstadt used to take my class all the time, and here's how perky I was back then. <laughs> I happen to think she's the greatest singer in the world. I mean, I I love Barbara Streisand. Obviously, Celine Dion has pipes. There's many amazing. Singers, but there and Cindy Lauper, I'm a huge fan of her. But there is nobody uh, like Linda Ronstadt. She is the most beautiful, glorious cry every time I hear a singer. And here we go again. Some gal was taking my class. She goes, I'm going to bring in my friend Linda. And I was like, okay, you do that. That'll be great. Her friend Linda's Linda Ronstadt. So this, this room, which honestly, it was maybe twice the size if we pushed it, it was a small boutique club, small boutique aerobics room in a very old building, which they had just put up some mirrors. It was no big whoop de do at all. And here comes this car. I can't remember exactly how it was, but I could see this car with these enormous Rottweilers, two Rottweilers. I can't remember if it was a, there weren't even really SUVs back then. But anyway, these dogs were hanging out of the windows. And here comes my friend going out to the car. And who gets out of the car? I'm not even really looking at the woman. I'm looking at these enormous Rottweiler dogs. It was Linda. And she came in and took my class, and it was in her absolute, I, I, I want to say just, I don't know, where was she in 83? I'm going to say like slight, slightly, like you could see her peop, You could see her without passing out. Mm-hmm. Whereas a few years earlier, I think it was just like, what? But she was playing the Universal Amphitheater, I remember, because I went to see her with her girlfriend. And I feel embarrassed, I can't remember her girlfriend's name, but that's the way it goes. But anyway, she took my class, and at one point I said to her, Linda, because I, uh, you know, because I'm a singer, doing aerobics is really going to help your voice. It's going to really expand your lung capacity, and you're going to be an even greater singer. I said that to Linda <laughs> on set. I let Linda know that I, <laughs> that I was going to help her <laughs> be a better singer. <laughs> well, I know what I was trying to say. I was going to yeah. say aerobic activity yeah. gives you these huge lungs, which it does. <laughs> but the fact that I was in that sort of spot that's that's where my confidence was at that moment you know I was like listen this isn't just gonna like take care of you know losing a few pounds this is gonna make your voice even better (laughs) I dared to talk about voice with Linda but that was that and we went to see her at the um amphitheater I think um I feel like we saw her more than once but because I was with her friend whose name I'm unable to remember, who was such a great girl, too. She was such a fabulous girl. I can see her. But, you know, we went backstage. But we didn't just go backstage, because these places have a backstage mm-hmm. 
and then they have the dressing room. But I mean, we were in her area. And I just remember coming out with her little voice. She had this little voice and she was like, hi, Bess. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm backstage with Linda and she knows my name. It was so great. <laughs> it sounds like because of where you were working, you were able to interact with all of these amazing, absolutely celebrities. And- yes, absolutely. And I never would have been in that position. And the only reason I even tell all this detail that, I, that I'm going to lay in right now is just so that people, younger people particularly, understand that each little step is taking you somewhere. So the reason I was even in this apartment in Brentwood, which I never would have been in Brentwood, ever, because I grew up in the valley in Woodland Hills, um, my boyfriend, who I met in high school, my darling David, who did ultimately turn out to be gay. So, but so what? I mean, it was will and grace. It was definitely, you know, it was a will and grace thing. So what? Who cares? Uh, His brother was a uh, flight attendant. So his brother, Keith, got an apartment in Brentwood because it was easy to get to the airport. And then when David got out of high school, which was a year before me, he moved in with Keith. And then I got out of high school after that. Keith had moved to another hub city, like it's somewhere in Texas or Dallas or something. And then I moved into that apartment with David. So that's how I got to be in Brentwood. And that's how I started to uh, be exposed in the gym world. I lived there when I did Terminator. I lived there even when I went to England. Mm -hmm. Even, I think, when I went to San Francisco, I lived there. So right out of high school, I moved there. But it still wasn't... Uh, mingling with the locals until I, until I started teaching. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my boyfriend and I were together, David and I were together for many, many years. Ultimately, you know, when he got a, a little older and it was a little more uh, acceptable, because remember, I mean, you know, I'm old. There was time, uh, the boys I grew up with, they couldn't say they were gay and they were all gay. Mm-hmm. They were all gay. I mean, they were actors and dancers and, you know, but you know, we just didn't know. The girls didn't know. We just thought we were had the cutest boyfriends who could really dance. It's just how it was. But anyway, David and I stayed, you know, friends for many, 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 many years until he passed away. And I never, no matter, you know, uh, there were some years where I was a little bitter about him not saying, coming clean and saying, hey, you know, I, that, that bothered me for a while. But ultimately, when now I'm old enough to look back at my whole life flow, my river, my traje- trajectory of how I got from there to here, which is a fabulous place, I, I understand that he was put into my life to, to get me to there, which got me to so many other places. And it's not like, you know, he disappeared. I wonder where he is now. I mean, you know, I was with him till the end of his life. Mm-hmm. So... You know, people come in and out of your life. Some people are there for the long, long haul. Some aren't. But every person is teaching you something and giving you something. And and that's just like today when I was running around the house going, I'm meeting Laura Kitty. <laughs> like, like, cha-cha-cha. Because I was like, from the minute I first saw your work, it spoke to me. And I never imagined that I'd get to meet you, you know. It's just, you're so fabulous. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think you're very fabulous, too. Yeah, I love that. I mean... I totally agree. I mean, I was having conversations similar to that yesterday about the people coming in and out of your life and, and having the purpose for that moment and right. just appreciating it. For even You know, obviously sometimes we end up with some bitter feelings, but like having right. the appreciation for the, the reasons why they're brought into your life and the good parts. In right, life. right. And I think that the bitter feelings, you know, when someone does you wrong, I mean, really does you wrong. I don't believe in keeping... Yeah. poisonous people in my life don't get me wrong and that's okay 
to, to let go of those people more than okay. Advisable to let go of really poisonous uh, relationships. Uh, but, but in hindsight, there's always either, I don't even want to call it a gift, but you got something out of it. You learn not to do that again, yeah. worst case scenario. And then best case scenario, if you're able to you know, grow and develop and be healthy and whole inside, you, you come away with nothing but, but feeling empathy for the person. I don't want to say, you know, feeling sorry because that's you know, empathy. Uh, you, you kind of maybe understand why they're that way. You never understand why they were hurtful to you, of course. But you know what I mean? You, you, I love the saying now that, that people say, that, who hurt you? I'm like, that's right. Who hurt you? It all comes from something. Mm-hmm. And you get older and learn not to take things as personally. But, you know, but so many people, by the time you get to be a certain age, there's so many... Uh, tapestry colors in your tapestry that sometimes you forget where the mauve goes to purple goes to dark blue you forget all those colors you just remember the brighter colors but it's all in there you know it's all in there (laughs) when did you meet your husband my husband and I met at the same gym on Robertson where Mary we met at the Mary Tyler Moore gym and he and I started our relationship because he was a recording engineer and he had some demo songs that he needed recorded. Mm-hmm. So that's how I met him, was via that. And then eventually we started uh, dating and dating. I mean, you know, we just started hanging out and we just got along so well. He asked me to marry him almost immediately, like to the point where I was like, uh oh, this guy's weird because I actually not not to be um, I'm not trying to be mean to my la- boyfriend prior but even my prior relationship I remember he almost immediately said I think I want to marry you or something to that effect if this works out I want to marry you like on our first date and at the time I was like woohoo <laughs> but in hindsight when my now husband said that to me I was like uh oh that's not something you say, but he didn't say it on the first date. He, we knew pretty quickly that, that we wanted to, um, you know, be together. And then we were engaged for like seven years because I was in no rush to get married. And I, when I turned 40, I felt like I was almost being disrespectful to him. I felt like, well, I, I felt silly in introducing him as my boyfriend. And also I thought, well, you're 40, your wedding picture is going to look like hell if you don't get married. So we did a very, um, you know, very easy, casual wedding. We drove up to uh, Santa Barbara during one of the El Ninos when it's storming. And we, very romantic. We took my best friend and her boyfriend at the time and and got married up at the courthouse. And the pictures are absolutely gorgeous because the courthouse is, looks like you're in a Italian villa or something. It's so beautiful. And water everywhere and the, the clouds made it very glowy and it was just a fantastic day, but it was no big, you know, we just kind of did it like that on Valentine's Day. <laughs> so it wasn't like a stressful situation because by that time I'd gone to so many weddings with so many friends that just had horror stories or so many friends that had these huge weddings and then divorced within a few years, you know, something like that, that we were just like, we want a marriage. We don't really want a wedding. We want a marriage. And that's how it worked for us. Everybody's different. That's what we did. And it was perfect. And I think, yeah, this uh, February will be our 25th anniversary. So it worked out okay. Uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And he's very, very, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm a very um, Italian person. I just, I say Italian is sort of a catch-all, but I, I think people know what I mean when I say that. I'm very emotional. I get, I do get upset when things upset me, if that sentence makes sense. Like mm-hmm. some people get upset, but they don't show it and that's fine. But for me, when, when something upsets me, I show that I'm upset and he's really great about, you know, uh, remaining calm, not taking it personally over the years. He has actually, as an example, which is what I feel is how, why he came into my life, taught me not to be a, what I would call maybe a kicker and a thrower. Like I used to like to slam the telephone down or kick a door if I was, you know, I was a door slammer and he has really neutralized that. (laughs) Also paying for doors, you know, it gets expensive. (laughs) But really, I was a lot more um, energized and he really helped me to stay more just emotion free in actual outward effect, Mm -hmm. which was... Excellent. Sounds very balancing. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think I've given him more of a a love of musical theater. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So throughout like the 90s, were you just mostly teaching? Was that what you were? Yeah, I really was. My my, um, more personal side of the story is that when I was quite young, like even when I was in England, in London, my mom unfortunately began to uh, develop Alzheimer's disease and my grandmother had had it as well and so I knew how it was going to go you know my mom really it was so bad my father had passed away when I was 30 so uh, when my mom got it so bad it was just you know it, it was and I, I adored my mother it was so sad for me and it was it was just you know auditions just didn't matter and and the uh schedule of being a teacher was something I could control. I could teach in the mornings and then have the rest of my days free. And again, this was years ago. It was before, I don't even know, many people didn't even know the the term Alzheimer's. Um, There were no, a place for mom. There was none of that kind of stuff. It was just very, it was still sort of a uncharted territory. I'm not saying blame, but sometimes when I sit still and think, what was I doing? What was, what was I doing then? And I'm like, oh, Yes, now I remember. So it was it was a, a, a hard time and a difficult time, but um, again, it was what it was. Um, my mom was such an amazing mom to me. She, she, you know, my mom was born in 1919. I know, is that insane? <laughs> and she was an older mom. She had me when she was 40. And she had been an only child, lived through the Depression. She was a very giving, loving. She was Catholic. I mean, really Catholic. Like, even when my mother's Alzheimer's had taken away her speech, she would be reciting prayers. Like, she couldn't say, hi, honey, how are you? Even if she had recognized Mm -hmm. me. She couldn't say that. But it was almost like possession. Prayers would just come out of her. So, I mean... I'm just trying to draw the kind of person she was. She wasn't the kind of person that you would leave alone, particularly. I, I needed to check on her <laughs> a lot. And, and that's what I did. And so that's what I did through a lot of those years. But I was always teaching. And I had really beautiful friends. You know, when you teach at a gym, I call it the high school that never ends because you're seeing the same people every morning. And for me, it was my job. But for them, it's their hour a day. It's their Mm playtime. So it's not like working in an office where you're sitting there in pantyhose in the same cubicle every day next to someone you hate. 
I got to, you know, flit all around the gym and play music constantly. And people would come in and out, different fabulous people. I got to meet so many wonderful people from that. So I thought it was a great job. Much better for an actor than being a waiter, mm-hmm. which I thought was hard because you had to balance things. I, w- I was a waitress once for like, seriously, I think for two weeks. And I must have dropped every other tray. Or if I was walking with a tray of drinks, they would just start bouncing and fall over. I, I don't know how servers do it. So I couldn't do that. So for me, an in-between job, aerobics teacher, it's perfect. you know. And then I had the great resume because of the TV show. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I ever really had to prove myself particularly to get the job. I, I had started and just kept going. I never stopped. So it was fun. <laughs> I just stopped teaching recently. I mean, I really just stopped teaching because they built a club so close to my home and I used to have to drive quite a bit to go to where I I taught. My husband said, just stop now, it's enough. But I still go to class every single day because that's just what I do in the morning. What else would I do in the morning? What kind of classes do you go to now? Now I do spin classes. Mm -hmm. I have a Pilates reformer. And so that's what I love. The spin is great for the music, for the energy. I just don't want to do anything high impact where I could like roll my ankle. Mm-hmm. Or I, my whole goal in exercise life is to not be injured. And also, I know this isn't how exercise is supposed to be, but at my age, I don't want to be sore. You know, so my Pilates reformer is good for my strength training, and the spin is great for the cardio. But I'm I'm a cardio junkie. I have so much endurance, and I'm not strong. I always say I don't have strength. I can't hit you hard, but I can run away from you all day. <laughs> I mean, the those workouts that, you know, the 20-minute workouts, like you're de- bump, jumping up and down on these, like, bare floors. And Isn't I'm that wild? And no, like, shoes on. I'm like, how do these girls do this? Isn't that crazy? I don't know. Well, the version that I did, by the time I came to it, we wore um, the, little, the little white Nike sneakers okay. and the leg warmers. And then that was Deborah's uh, version that they were really barefoot. But I was on the same floor, and I'm telling you, it was like a countertop. It didn't have give. And, but they also weren't doing exactly a whole workout. That, that version of the show would be sort of like five-minute snippets. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that it wasn't as hard, but it was almost more... It was art. That was absolute art. Whereas as my version of the show was really much more about instruction. Mm-hmm. You know, you did a, a wonderful podcast with Norma Kamali. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know where I saw it, if it was somehow attached to that, but it was a video of Kamali bathing suits. I think Ron did that. I'm not sure what year it was, but I recognize it. That's Ron Harris's work. I'll have to look. I mean, I, I, I know I have it saved somewhere. Yes. Yeah, the... I look at so much stuff, I'm not exactly sure where I was in your nooks yeah. and crannies when I saw it. It wasn't on the actual gram, but but I recognize it. It's not it's not Norma in it, It's but it's her sort of fabulous geometric black mm-hmm. high, high cut. Yeah, I know exactly. And I think it must have been right around the time, and it's. I know, I can tell, because one of the models throws her head back, and it's the top camera, and that's his setup. And I can just tell. I can tell his work. And so I wanted to touch base with you on that because I had never seen that. And then that reminds me, leads to Diana Diana Ross had done some video. I think it must have been for uh, I Want My Soul, if you remember that one. Um, I think Ron did a commercial with Diana Ross. 
And I never knew that. And somebody sent it to me. So he did a whole bunch of other, obviously, he was a, you know, he was a fashion photographer, but he did a lot of other things on that hard tabletop besides just, yeah. you know, our, our little exercise shows. I think other people saw it and said, I want to do a video yeah. or I want to, you know, advertise my stuff that way. But Norma's stuff is just gorgeous. I'm sure you looked amazing in all of your Norma outfits back then. Oh my gosh. I got them at Nordstrom. I'm not Nordstrom. Uh, Neiman Marcus on Wilshire. In the 80s, I think the Neiman's was new, and I, I, can even, I can visualize it all, and oh, she was just everything. I mean, she still is. She's mm-hmm. absolutely inspirational to this day. She's a few years ahead of me. So I have a few women that I look up to who are, you know, I'm 64. I'm not going to look straight across the line at, um, you know, Madonna or um, Sharon Stone. Here, here's who else is 64, because I do look at the girls just to see who's in my... The beautiful actress Madeline Stowe, mm-hmm. she's 64. Oh, she doesn't mind. I, I just know. I, I go on this gossip site, and every day it says everyone's birthday <laughs> and how old they are. And I'm like, oh, that one's my age. That one's my, my age. Well, my husband and I call it the Club 58, those who were born in 58, because it's a really magnificent group of people. It's Michael Jackson, Madonna, Prince, me, Madeline Stowe. I mean, there's a really strong, fabulous group of people from 58. So we're always looking to see who's in the 58 club. But, you know, I, I don't want to look at people who are born in my time because then you're just comparing. I'm not really into comparing. I like looking at people like, you know, Susan Lucci or Norma. And I'm not sure what, what Miss Kamali's age is, but she's a few years ahead of me. I like... She's probably like... I want to say like 75 or something. I think so. 70, 77 now? Yeah. I think she might have been 75 when I interviewed Well, her. she's absolutely ageless. Yeah. And no, that's... I mean, she looks incredible. I, well, I, there's no way I will look as incredible when I'm that age. I don't know how she does. I no, I, I've never met anyone who looks like that. Well, she's that just a goddess. Yeah. And the other one who's a goddess is Tony Basil. She's mm-hmm. just a I mean, goddess. So, I mean, I really look... Susan Lucci is such a beautiful little doll. I mean, she's... She's another one. You can't hope to, to be that amazing, but, but you can still look f- ahead mm-hmm. at these gorgeous women who are 10 years ahead of you and be inspired by their energy. Yeah. It's not really even about beauty. It's just about the energy of the spirit and the consistency of the effort. It's hard to keep it going. <laughs> There's a point where if you stop putting in the effort, you seem to age much faster. But, you know, if you're not putting in the yes. effort with, like, working out or taking care of right. yourself or keeping your brain engaged. Right, or, or watching what's happening with, you know, younger generations. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've made this friend at the gym, and she's, very, you know, very popular on Instagram. You know, millions of followers. She's adorable. Now, she does, you know, the modern version, if you will, of what I did on 20-Minute Workout. And by that, I mean she's, you know, half naked on her Instagram. She probably has um, the fans-only page. I, I haven't delved that deep into it. But she's a darling girl. She's, you know, 23 years old. And, you know, I love talking to her at the gym. I love finding out what's going on. I give her my little, whatever little words of wisdom that I can. But, you know, I introduced her the other day to my husband. And he goes, oh, I know what you see in her. I know exactly. Because I told her that I was you know, friends with this girl who, you know, had a, you know, very, um, you know, they, they, it's booty shaking. It's a booty shaking Instagram. Her physique is gorgeous. It's, it's, it's a fitness Instagram, but it's also a little more fabulous than that. 
But, you know, I showed him a few pictures. He's like, you're friends with her? And I'm like, yeah, she's fabulous. I love her. And she remi- and he goes, I know why. And, she, and I'm like, what? And he, he said, because she reminds me of you. Because she's working on it. And she's a businesswoman. And she's working on it. And that's exactly right. So, I mean, I love having friends from all different aspects of, of generational experience. And it's great. <laughs> You have so much energy you need to be connecting out there, connecting with people. I've always said that energy is my commodity, commodity, like someone has beautiful eyelashes or beautiful hair or great eyebrows. You have all those things, by the way. <laughs> but I mean, I've always felt that my commodity, my thing that I could pull up at any time was my energy without being a phony, you know, with, mm-hmm. without being insincere. For me, it's always been quite the opposite where I had to learn how to to uh, calm down just for to get there quickly, to deflate the uh, emotional energy that I'm likely to have so that other people could be near yeah. me. And so, yes, that's why exercising was always perfect for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, naps in the afternoon help. <laughs> Those kind of workouts are, um, everyone does them in their own way. So, you know, my way to do it what came from all my information and all my ice skating and all my yeah. millions of dance classes and all <laughs> millions and all of that, that informed when I was, you know, let loose to do exercise, which was perfect for me. Because even though I took so many dance classes my whole life, I really wasn't a great dancer because I could never remember the combinations. And I couldn't do a double pirouette, which is the staple for dance auditions. At least it was in my day. Probably now it's a quadruple pirouette. But the energy that I and the love of movement, I could make beautiful shapes. So that's why the exercise was great for me. And then my energy level allowed me to do a lot of them, whether it was teaching two or three times a day or more, or doing a bunch of TV shows in one day. My level of energy was perfectly matched to that. Whereas the normal... A person only has to do one workout a day at their level mm-hmm. and start anytime they want and just do their best. There was some, some interviewer from the mid-80s and they were talking about how you were sort of putting together really original classes. Did you feel like you were pushing the boundaries with aerobics? Yes, yes because when I started, the classes that I started with, the choreography was not, I, I would not even call it choreography. It was exercise moves and the uh, what you would call aerobics, was goofy. Mm-hmm. It was hoedown moves. Oh, yeah, like some of the original Jane Fonda's. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was hoedown moves. And, you know, I would never, you know, ever... I mean, Jane Jane was taught by her teachers, and they were the ones doing these hoedown moves because that's what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. And I had the... I was blessed to be taught by one of the best jazz teachers in the world, Joe Tremaine, he probably doesn't even know I was in his class, but this is who trained all of Michael Jackson's, all the dancers from Thriller, Paula Abdul trained with him, I mean, studied with him. These were the best dancers in the world in LA studying with Joe Tremaine. And I was just a little girl in the back row, you know, cutting class to go take his classes with some of my dancer friends. And that's where I learned to dance was from Joe Tremaine and, and learn, you know, the, the, the sensuality, the sexuality of the movement, the energy, how to, how, to, how to make things vital and vibrant and fantastic. And, and that's why when, and that, that information combined with seeing Deborah in aerobicize and then training, taking Deborah's class, and she was so sensual and so fabulous. 
and then Ron coming in and taking Debbie, Debbie's class and then taking my class as I developed mine, you know, that, that was just sort of, once I started teaching, I think I started teaching even before Deborah got there. I don't remember, but but once I started teaching, I was like ho down, schmo down. My warm up was the warm up Joe Tremaine taught me, and it was sex. I mean, it was you know, it, you know my warm up. It was a twenty minute workout. I mean, and it wasn't like I was stealing Joe's movements. Those were all the that all jazz dancers did those movements. Those were the movements, and there was much more to it. But I had to cut it down you know, for 20 minute workout, but that was the, that was the warm up. That's what we did. And oh my God, I really need to tell Joe someday how much he, you know, informed my whole <laughs> life because I don't think he knows. I mean, I never really went back and took classes in my twenties because I'm not kidding. I was not a good dancer. I, I was a great mover, but these dancers, he'd show them once and they just bam. I mean, psh, it was insane. <laughs> but I was in the room. I was in the room where it happened <laughs> with those girls and those boys. And that was that was always in my head. And again, I wouldn't have even, I, would, I don't think I've ever brought up Joe to anybody. But he was definitely my ground zero for getting it right. Mm -hmm. And how to stand there and how to own your leotard. <laughs> Whenever I post one of those movie clips or work from the 80s, someone always comments, I can't believe that they all worked out on carpet, like, oh, da, da, da. like yes. people always talk about the carpet, and yes. what was that like, and why, when did it stop, you know, what, like, it seems like it was such a period in the 80s of just yes. the carpet. Yes, well, uh, let me tell you, first of all, it was horrible, and I'll tell you why, because it was generally rooms that already existed <laughs> that, you know, they would just they were cement floors, I mean, and they would just put carpeting over it, and sometimes they wouldn't even put a pad underneath. Why, you ask? Because the pad would get full of sweat. So better to just put the layer of carpet down. And the shin splints that we all suffered, just insane pain. I know when I started, I, I was so lucky because I wasn't really at that gym that long. It seemed like I was there forever, but it really was a very concentrated amount of time. And one day the gym was just closed. I went to teach my classes and there was a lock on the door. That's how that the gym... The Brentwood one? Yeah, the Brentwood one. And by then I was also teaching it at the sister club in Encino. And that's how that went down. And that was probably like 85, 86. I mean, I was very entrenched in going to the malls and leading the aerobics competitions and doing a lot of modeling and endorsing by then. But I can tell you it was insanely painful uh, none of us got out scot-free. The only, the only way I got out was by then they were starting to actually build clubs with, they called them sprung wood floors. And I don't even know if clubs build that anymore. They might. But to go from what I went on, which was cement with carpet, which, you know, of course the carpet was stinky. It was just a mess. It was horrible. But there was the amazing music and the mirror. And the music was so fantastic at the time. I mean, it was just, you know, Madonna was exploding. George Michael was exploding. Soft Cell, um, Tainted Love. I mean, just, I, we didn't even have cassette tapes at that point. We used to spin our own records. So you'd do a four-minute routine, and then you'd say, okay, keep moving. And you'd go flip to your next record. And I'm not even kidding. I know that um, there was one record that Deborah had turned me on to that was like a, an 11-minute long track. I think it was called Tantra or something like that. I wish I could remember now. Kathmandu. It was called Kathmandu. Okay. 
Oh my God, I found it once semi-recently, like a few years ago. It was the greatest long instrumental. And it was like, ah, 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 and it just went on and on. It was, it was creepy in a, in a really weird, fabulous way. But if you could find, my point being, if you could find a song that was long, you used that song. But it's when the go-go's were happening. You know, we'd drop, uh, I'd play We Got the Beat and do a routine. And then I'd just go drop it on the same song again. I mean, that's how hilarious it was. When, when cassettes came into it, Oh, you've got to be kidding. We can record a whole class. That was fantastic. That was fantastic. There's a very famous guitar player named Ry Cooter. He's, uh, do you know who he is? Mm -hmm. All right, wonderful. Because unless you have musical knowledge, you might not know who he is. But he was taking my classes. And oh, he was just the cutest thing in the world. Now that, because I was so young at the time, he seemed so much older to me, but he was probably just 10 years older than me. So he was probably 33 when I was 23. And he got me big time, because part of what made my class so popular was that I would sing to everything loud. So that was kind of between my, my movements and singing. It was, it was good, it was fire. But he was digging it, and I remember I didn't know how to make a cassette from records. I did, how do you get it from the record onto the cassette? So he brought me his TIAC machine because he had you know, real recording equipment and he loaned me his TIAC machine and taught me how to do it and that's how I made my first cassettes. And see, this is another thing. I would have never even particularly remembered that if we weren't on that subject. And that's why I, that's why I like doing this kind of stuff, which I don't do very often, but I should. But anyway, here... <laughs> And I had just gotten a toy poodle, a little toy poodle pup, puppy named Oopie, <laughs> which my mom named her because she thought the name Oopette meant powder puff. But since uh, Lagerfeld, I think it was Shoopet because that's what he named his powder puff mm -hmm. cat. So I think she thought it was Oopette, which we shortened to Oopie. But anyway, that little poodle chewed all the knobs off of Ry Cooter's <laughs> Tiak machine, which I for some reason had on the floor because I think I had all my albums spread out around me. And I had to somehow find a way to replace those knobs before I could return it to him. <laughs> and I remember feeling so bad because I was like, Rye wants that TAC back. And, I've, and I, I had to send away for those, <laughs> for those knobs. Isn't that a weird detail? Which I never would have remembered. <laughs> I love that. But yes, those floors were hideous. And my Brentwood studio, the Brentwood gym where I taught, because it had a very high-end clientele, at least the gym was kept nice. Sometimes I would go in to take somebody else's classes. There was one very famous girl, beautiful African-American girl. I believe her name was Candace Darling. And I'm not sure if she's, I think she's still teaching. But I remember she taught on a linoleum floor, black and white, like a kitchen tile floor. It was outrageous. Jumping, jumping, isn't that wild? That would, that, yeah, it just sounds like it hurts. It did, yeah, but all of us, we all did it. We kind of all knew each other. We all knew of each other. There was a definite sisterhood, definite sisterhood. One of the gals that came out of my gym, besides Deborah, who from Aerobicize and who taught me everything I knew about that style and, and definitely, you know, was, was my mentor. 
besides besides her, we, we would all take each other's classes. We would try to, or they'd all come take my classes. There were all competitions that started happening. So we all met and knew each other. Jane Fonda's workout was a whole nother thing. That was that was a whole nother kettle of fish. That was over the hill and, and you know, Jane, I, I don't want to say there was competition between the the famous teachers, but there was, you know, there was a little, a little jostling, you know. <laughs> I think it's inevitable, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, looking back, we were all doing the same thing. We all, we all knew each other and, or knew of each other. There was a, a, a throwaway newspaper like the LA Weekly. It was called, like the Village Voice, it was called City Sport. Mm-hmm. And I'd been on the cover of City Sport, I think. But they were having some sort of convention-y thing at the Bonaventure Hotel, and they were going to give a, a sort of a lifetime achievement or a, an award to Jane Fonda. And I was going to not necessarily present it to her, but I think I introduced her or, or I introduced the person who was going to do I can't remember exactly what it was. I'm pretty sure I didn't hand it to her, but I was in the chain of command. My memory, and I cannot even believe I'm telling this story, but it just goes to youth. My boyfriend at the time, David, thought that it was hilarious for us to get, this is when you could get these t-shirts or sweatshirts. They had stores where they would print up whatever you wanted on iron-ons. Mm-hmm. And so I printed up a legend in her own mind. I was talking about myself. A legend in her own mind. And I can't even remember what the other thing on the back said. I don't know, something else with the word legend. But I was wearing that walking around that I was talking about myself, a legend in her own mind. And I, no, no one particularly said anything to me. I must have thought about it at some point years later. And I'm like, oh my Lord, they probably thought, because she was getting some kind of legend award, they probably thought, <laughs> I wish I could find a picture to see what that other side said. There was something else about legend. But I don't know. That was one of those times where it was like, Open mouth, insert Nike. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, we, they were, there were all kinds of conventions and all kinds of... It was so much fun. It was just so much fun. There were so many different legs to it. The clothes were fantastic. The music was insane. I loved Sylvester. I loved Sylvester so much. He was just... I think I've been a fan of that that era of it since I was a child watching my mother's videos you know? yeah yeah and state like it's just always still been like the sort of in the the ideal I guess in my mind you yeah. know is that like gym right. bunny aerobics bunny 80s like look right. you know um and so I've always done I, I continue to still do the video you know and love them and it's just I think like for someone in your um group who digs that 80s aerobic stuff and of course there's the music and and the mtv videos it all kinds of goes goes kind of together it's like the way i loved the movies from the 40s and 50s or i loved anything with judy garland or elizabeth taylor or vivian lee it would have been like you know i'm not saying i'm not saying i'm those but i'm saying it would have been the same kind of like fun for me to sit down and say to Elizabeth Taylor, so what was it like at MGM? It must have been wild. But that's why, you know, I like to do it because I know that to me, the 80s is so easily accessible to my mind because I had so much, 
so many great memories. And then if there's someone else who loves it or digs it or is like, oh, I always wondered how they could jump on that floor. I'm like so thrilled to, to like give you the sights and smells and tastes of what it was. Yeah, because it was a time. Wish I could go back. I know I can't, so I just sort of, you know, research enough that I feel like I know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just, I don't know how. I was just like very into pop culture and pop culture sort of history from like a very young age. You know, I was like weirdly obsessed with like Adam Ant in the, the yes. 90s. Like, yes, you know, yes, even yes, though it wasn't like cool. No, I understand. And so I had my own weird, I was off on my own trip. No, I like it. Like, like, well, when I lived in London, it's when Kate Bush was just, Mm. I mean, that's why I've been laughing because uh, Run Up the Hill is so popular right now. And it's like, it's like regenerated when I first heard Running Up the Hill, how amazing. And, and, and when I would do those being in airports and airplanes all the time with my little Walkman and always listening to, um, Kate and and early Prince, just dying for Prince, just loving Prince so much. But but I mean, for me, it was of my time. But that's such great music that just because it's older to you, how can you not adore that music? You know, yeah. I mean, Adam Ant was everything, and Bow Wow Wow, and oh my gosh, all that stuff was just. So I was like eleven, and there would be like Adam Ant conventions. So this is like ninety five, and. Like, my parents would have to take me, and everyone else would be 30s and up. And I was, like, this, like, a weird 11-year-old who was, like, obsessed with, like, saved my pocket money for months to, like, buy memorabilia from the early, like, the late 70s, early 80s. But you were always you. Yeah. You've always been you. I was just, yeah. My parents were, like, okay, do your shit. Yeah. But that's so great. Um, You're just some kind of old soul thing. I mean, and I'm sure, I, I know I used to just... I would think it was so weird if somebody didn't know who some old actor was. It's like, you don't know who Joan Crawford is? You, you, what what a weirdo, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, when you, you were talking about the old actors, you mentioned Judy Garland, which I know you played Judy on stage, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I started singing, I mean, of course, everyone grows up watching uh, The Wizard of Oz. I keep wanting to say The Sound of Music, that too, but The Wizard of Oz. But when I was um, quite small, like six... My mother was a member of a, a musical sorority called SAI, Sigma Alpha Iota. And they would have these groups of, uh, you know, they'd have their meetings once a month. And very musical, really, I mean, educated musicians. And I would always go with her. And one time somebody was playing the piano and they started to play Over the Rainbow. And I said, I can sing that for you. And, you know, I, I, I wore my hair in little braids just because that's how I wore my hair. And I got up and I sang Over the Rainbow as a little girl. And everyone was just like, uh, uh, people freaked out. And, I mean, it was grown-up women, musicians, mm-hmm. just going, well, how did you learn to do that? Which is something that I heard a lot. How did you learn to do that? Where did you learn to do that? And so Over the Rainbow just sort of became my life anthem. And... I, I just became obsessed with Judy Garland. And then as I began to grow and mature, I started to, I mean, I really looked like her a lot when I was young. <clears throat> I was trying to find a picture that I wanted to show you from when I was 17 doing theater. I, I don't know if I can find it now. But anyway, I really looked like her a lot and, and I had the same kind of voice. So it, it got just kind of bizarre. And 
I really wanted to do Judy's story somehow my whole life. I mean, since I was a young teenager and people would say, you're gonna win an Oscar for playing Judy Garland from the time I was a teenager. You're gonna play Judy Garland one day and you're gonna win an Oscar. Well, as the years went by, nobody was doing anything about Judy Garland, not really. And I was pretty much out of the theater scene. And my friend calls me up and says, are you gonna go audition for um, The Boy From Oz? And I was out here and I'm like, well, what's that? And he's like, it's this huge hit in Australia and they're going to do it on Broadway and you need to audition to play Judy. Judy's in it. And I was like, I, I, no can do. It was like my mom was sick. She, uh, I, I had do, you know responsibilities with my job and I was like, no, I can't do it. But then as it came out with, oh, nobody, just Hugh Jackman playing Peter Allen. And, you know, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the girl who played Judy. She's just amazing, marvelous, fantastic job. That all came out and I think Vogue did some sort of fashion spread on it and I could see everything and I was like, oh, it was just like, it was just like a knife to the heart. I'm like, oh, I would have killed to do that. But flash forward, <laughs> the same friend calls me up. He's like, well, they're doing The Boy From Oz West Coast premiere. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. And there's a, a theater out here called Celebration Theater. It's a smaller theater. It's not one of the big houses. Um, it's the, the longest running LGBTQ theater. And they're doing, the, no one, the, the Boy From Oz had never come to Los Angeles. It's an extremely expensive show. It's a huge show. I mean, there were camels on stage mm -hmm. on Broadway. So he tells me, you've got, you've got to do this. And I'm like, I tell him, I've got to do this. So I had an audition in a bazillion years. But I, I had that same feeling from when I was a kid. I'm like, well, you're gonna do this. And I didn't really particularly rehearse or practice, but I had the sheet music to uh, The Man That Got Away. I used to audition with that to blow people's minds. <laughs> and so I just found my old sheet music to The Man That Got Away and put the music down and started singing it. It sounded pretty good, but it was really, I'd probably run it a couple times at home, but with the piano, pianist there, I was like, well, that sounds pretty good. And I looked in the audience and everyone was like, and then I could just tell, they were like, okay, well, it was that, I mean, somebody might've said, okay, well, we don't, we don't need to audition anymore. It's a joke. I mean, and I, I felt like I had nailed it. You know, I did my Judy look and everything. And then I waited and waited. And somebody else I know said that she'd gotten the role she auditioned for and they announced the cast, and guess who wasn't Judy Garland? Me. They had gone with a bigger name. They went with someone who does TV and who uh, literally was a bigger name than me. And oh my God, why did I even put myself, why did I try, blah, 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 blah. Ugh, and they even started rehearsing, and on social media I had to see all the pictures of everyone rehearsing. It was like, oh, I guess I do still care. I guess I care. But I was also a little miffed, like, I, I, here's what I thought. I thought if I can't play Judy Garland, then forget it. Just for, forget it. So I pretty much figured I was done with ever auditioning. And then this sweet woman who was doing it, her mother got ill. And she had to go take care of her mother. Synergy much? She had to go do her time, like I had done my time. Mm -hmm. And they called me back and said, would you like to do it? And I, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe my good fortune that I had said goodbye. I totally already been, I'd gotten through all the stages. I had been 
mad, sad, regretful, in denial. I'd gone through it all, and then here it came right back to me. So I got this beautiful gift of doing Judy in The Boy From Oz in this jewel box of a little black box theater where the people were right there, and, and the guy who played Peter Allen, Andrew Bongiorno, who's a beautiful Australian. Oh, he's so wonderful. I mean, Australian and Italian, oh my God. And he could sing and dance and he was heavenly. And, and the girl that played Liza Minnelli, uh, Jessica Pennington Quinn is her name, and she was just, she was so amazing. And then I got to do my Liza and a girl that I went to high school with, what? Got to play Peter Allen's mother. I mean, it was like, it was just, it was like God was up there going, this will be good and this will be good, but first I'm going to torture you a little bit more so you'll really appreciate it. And that's what it was. I appreciated it so much because I really wasn't even supposed to be there. This other amazing actress was supposed to do it. But then God played the mother card <laughs> and she had to go take care of her mother and that was that. And that's how I got to do it. Okay, so then I did it. It was a huge hit, smash hit. My reviews were insane. Everybody's re reviews were insane. But I always say, whoever plays Judy wins. And whoever plays Judy wins. And so I won all the awards, the Ovation Award, which is like the, the Tony Award for Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Drama Critics Award. And it was just fantastic. It was just the greatest gift. And then I tried to get an agent. It's just show business. I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how it works. So that's that. And so that was just like this beautiful gift that I got to play Judy. And I think that it was like, it was, it gave me the feeling that I would be able to actually just walk in, just like I thought I could walk into Evita. Just how, it was the same feeling. I can do this. So when they started rumbling about doing, um, the End of the Rainbow. It was called, the, the play was The End of the Rainbow, but um, they called it Judy. I thought, I think I can do this. I think I will get this. I think somebody who saw me and someone who knows I got all these awards, I think somebody is going to call me to come in and audition for the movie. In fact, I know it. I know that that's why I got this play, that it's the only thing that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But that did not happen. <laughs> So then I've lived through the pain of knowing that Renee Zellweger was doing it. And, and, you know, I never saw it. I just could not because I just couldn't envision Renee, who I adore. Please don't get me wrong. She's fabulous, but doesn't look like Judy yeah. to my mind and couldn't. I, I don't know. I didn't see it. And I know she won an Oscar for it. So she's obviously fabulous. But as I say, whoever plays Judy wins. That's just how it is. So... I had to live through that pain, but then in hindsight now, and it was painful because that was right at the beginning of the pandemic and it was like, it was the final like big hurrah before we all shut down that, that, that Oscar ceremony and you know, when it just came to her category, I just went upstairs into my bedroom and just, you know, I said to my husband, just call me, call me when, it's, when her part's over. And he said, okay, you can come back now. And I came back and I go, did she win? He goes, oh yeah. And I'm like, yeah, whoever plays Judy wins. And that was it. I didn't watch her win it. And I didn't, I didn't see the movie and I just couldn't. I mean, I saw some ads for it, like on CNN or something before I could get to the TV, but I tried not to see any of it, you know, and, and that's just how I had to deal with it because it really had been a lifelong dream to play her, but I did. And so, you know, that's another, uh, particular little wedge in in my sort of 
three-pronged thing. Mm -hmm. But Judy, to me, was so huge. And I, I mean, I really, really talk about it because I'm not famous for playing Judy. But to anyone who grew up with me or ever saw me live, they know. And, you know, I mean, to this day, my friends are like, please put together a Judy nightclub act, please. And I'm like, oh, my God, she was dead 20, 15, 20 years by now. And they all say the same thing. But she looked old and you look young, so we could meet in the middle. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. The pandemic hit. I might have done it actually in the last two years, right off of doing the um, the Boy from Oz. But you know, timing just wasn't there. Do you have any interest in audition again? Are you interested in that now that you're no, no longer teaching? I, or I'm I am. I'm always interested in opportunities. I'm always interested in something like like even coming to meet you today. As soon as we set it up and everything, I'm like, oh, you're going to talk about yourself, which, I mean, you can see now, I don't have a problem doing that. But in, in uh, you know, the moment we made the preparations to do this, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so outside my comfort zone. It's so, and, and I do, there's certain things that I do in life where I'm like, you need to do this because you need to stretch a little bit because otherwise, especially as you get older, you can get so comfortable. I mean, candidly, I don't really need to leave my house, do I? I've got a beautiful home. I can say to my husband, hey, why don't you run up to the store? I can work out in my house. I've got a steam room. I've got a, a, a life cycle or your, whatever it's called, a Peloton thing. I've got all these things. I've got everything I need. I don't need to leave the house, but what good is that? Mm -hmm. So when my friend called me and said they're doing The Boy From Oz, you must audition. Honestly, the way I did that, I just said, put your left foot in front of your right. I think your music's over there. Left, right, left, right, left. Find the music. I did it in such breath steps. Mm -hmm. I didn't see the overview at all. I just did directly what was in front of me. And then even with us, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I, I I was so, like, not regretful, but I'm, like, uh, nervous, nervous, but not, not ner that kind of nervous, mentally nervous. And then I, I was like, well, you can always just call and cancel. She'll understand. Just cancel. And then I was like, what kind of a weirdo are you? Just do it. And I'm having the best time. And I just tell that personal honesty mm -hmm. so that everyone knows. I mean, you know, I know it seems like I have a big personality and a lot of energy, and it doesn't seem that way. I do. But even within that gift, there are the moments of, it's not doubt, it's just... Oh, you know, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. I don't even like saying make yourself do it. Just do it. You yeah, do it. It's a Nike logo. Just do it. It's that simple. So whether it's, it's you know, an audition or whatever. So that being said, after I did the, the show, and I was very disappointed that I didn't get a really um, smart agent out of it. I really thought I would get a smart, clever agent out of it. Someone who would come see it and go, oh, okay. Okay. Um, and that didn't happen, and I really wasn't interested in going to, uh, there's nothing wrong with being, a, 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 um, I don't want to say lower level because that sounds demeaning, but a, a, a lesser level agent and doing smaller level gigs. But that was not what I was about. I, that, I didn't want to go through the auditioning for one line kind of stuff. I just was not about putting my soul into that. Mm -hmm. So when it didn't pan out the way that I was hoping it would, I just kind of backed away from it. And then I made friends with, during the show, I made friends with someone at the gym. It turns out he was uh, the producer of Zendaya's TV show, not Euphoria, but um, her show that she had before, her Disney show, um, 
Casey Undercover. He had come and see me in the show. So he said, would you like to do an episode of Casey Undercover? I'll, I'll find something for you. So of course I did that. Of course I did that. So when I say I don't try very hard, I'm just, I just don't know exactly how to go about uh, connecting in the way I, I would want to. Mm -hmm. But when a, a friend that I've made at the gym comes and sees the show and says, oh my God, I'm going to find something for you. Of course I'm going to go do that. That's beautiful. So yes, I would love to do more things. I'm just, you know, being an actor, it's not just me. It's all actors. It's just running into a brick wall over and over and over and over. And I admire, I have so many friends that are still running into the brick wall. They're still trying. They're still uh, believing. And I'm not saying that in a sarcastic way. The things are going to come for them. Mm -hmm. But for me, I've, I've, it's so hard to keep going on that track le level. There's a certain amount of disconnect that I can't muster. They really don't take it personally. And I really do. Mm -hmm. I really do. Unless it's up for a job that I don't want anyway, then I wouldn't care. But if I'm not caring, why am I doing it? Mm -hmm. So you have to care. And I was telling my friend who's a very successful actor, and I, you know, I was telling him, it's like, for me... Every audition is like getting pregnant. I fully pan out and do the, the prep work. I fully pan forward to getting the job and doing the job. I'm pregnant. And then when I go and audition and don't get it, it's like I lose the baby. And that's painful for me. And it, that's, what it, that's what it, I mean, obviously I'm giving an analogy, but it's that kind of thing. It's like you, I had so much hope for it mm -hmm. and it's just gone. And I don't like that feeling. I don't like that feeling. So no actor likes it. So I don't know. I just felt when I was younger, because things were happening, I didn't have to deal with the sadness and rejection of being an actor. So I got very spoiled. I, I'll, I'll put it that way. And then when it started being about that, I was like, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> this is horrible. And I didn't like being a part of something that felt horrible. And then the aerobics came up and that felt excellent you know <laughs> that felt excellent well you've got all the endorphins just constantly right so it, I, I will say this being an actor is such a difficult job mm -hmm. and anyone who just goes oh she's an actor or she you know he oh he's an actor it's like no 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 no, no. it's such a difficult job you you cannot act like you can never behave like an actor as a flake it doesn't matter whether they worked or not. As long as you're still calling yourself an actor, it is so hard. There's so much work. And if you're still doing classes, which you should be, there's so much emotional work and so much. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much to being an actor that the returns are just, it's just so much work to get those returns. And, or quite the opposite. He just came into town. It was his first audition, and the show ran 25 years, and he married the most beautiful girl. That's a real story, too. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I get re-energized by different things, and I would hope that I would have more opportunity in that. And then now that I'm older, I so dig it. I mean, I, I, I have my Instagram stuff. When I started doing it, you know, I put up my throwbacks and my this and that. I, I really only started in the social media stuff because for a minute there I was doing the conventions, the signing mm -hmm. conventions. Somebody invited me to do that. And so I needed some sort of way to say I'm coming to Chicago or whatever yeah. it was. I needed some kind of thing. And that's how I started it. And then I just, 
I didn't really know how to do anything else with it, short of, I mean, I suppose if I wanted to, which I don't think I really do, but I could have a white wall or a mirror and start doing exercise every morning and just turn on a camera. I could do that mm -hmm. and expose my people to the fact that that's happening. I could probably only fans that and generate revenue mm -hmm. that way. I guess I could. I just, I mean, I'm definitely in that age demographic where it's like, yeah, I'm not quite sure which way to go with this. And then also because I've had weird O's. I mean, weird dudes that say creepy stuff. I delete things oh, like sure. that. I mean, you know, private messages and stuff. I'm like, I really don't want to put my toe into this weirdo world where you're sharing your life. But it, but again, that's just my age because it is a whole, it might as well be a TV show. You're, you, people, that's what they do. They're on the phone yeah. all day. It's so uh, wild. I never had any kids. I got married later. You know, I didn't really want kids when I, you know, when I mm -hmm. got married. My, I didn't have to have kids for my mom, you know. I, I was like my own person. My, I, my mom was my baby when I was in my 20s and 30s. I had already taken care of somebody. I had it out of my system. I wasn't into paying for college. I love cats. You know, I was a cat rescuer for a long time. And it didn't occur to me to have kids, but I don't know how my friends have done it. Usually when I end, is I just ask, like, what are you most proud of? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think, really, the, most, the, the thing that I'm the most proud of is that, um, and it wasn't something that I realized until, it's, it's sort of as I was talking about earlier, I never knew that I had helped so many people. I never really knew that I'd helped anybody. I never thought of it that way until um, social media brought me the information and brought me so many uh, messages of appreciation. I, I just had no idea. And so that's been my greatest joy from social media. I would have never known. I would have never known. But that, but now I know. And, and the thing that I'm the proudest of is that I was able to give a gift to some people, not just people exercising because they had a baby and they wanted to lose the baby weight. Not just that, which is wonderful too. I mean, I knew that was going on, but I didn't understand, or how, how would I, that I was actually a touchstone for many people and that they um, were able to almost find therapy, to find therapy and, and uh, a change in their actual mental outlook from that little exercise show. And that, that's really what I'm the most proud of. That's why when, you know, you hear people saying, well, you've got to find your purpose in life or your meaning in life. And I'm always like, oh, I, I've already done that. I really do feel that way. I feel like everything else is just, you know, icing on the cake because I feel like I really did, like I said, I didn't know I was doing it. I, I just naturally gave a gift. And, and I'm so happy. That's what I'm the proudest of. Thank you so much. This is so wonderful. Thank you, Laura. This has just been a joy. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Bess. On the website, I put together slideshow photos, a short bio, along with a bunch of her workout videos and other clips. I'm really behind in my editing, but I've recorded a ton of great interviews, which will hopefully be coming out soon. Everyone from graphic designers to iconic artists to writers and fashion designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com. Mm -hmm.